0: Welcome to JLab, a podcast from the Civic Journalism Lab, a forum for professional, student and community journalists in the northeast of England to meet, learn and collaborate. It's supported by Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley and in this podcast you'll hear two talks given at our recent Investigative Journalism Conference at Newcastle University hosted by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with the Centre for Investigative Journalism.
1: Shortly before one o'clock on Wednesday morning, an inferno broke out in a tower block in West London.
0: HuffPost UK Special Correspondent Emma Yule, who's a previous winner of the Paul Foot Award, describes how she and colleagues discovered that Kensington and Chelsea Council made 129 million pounds from selling property in the years leading up to the Grenfell fire tragedy, money that could have been spent on the tower's renovation works.
1: Scenes of unimaginable horror.
2: Quite high up, like just
0: above but first, Emma's colleague, HuffPost UK executive editor Jess Brammer, who's a former deputy editor of Newsnight, gives us her thoughts on investigative reporting in a digital age.
2: Um, I'm Jess, I uh, run everything editorial at HuffPost UK, and my colleague Emma um, is our uh, main investigative journalist in our newsroom. So we're going to talk a bit about um, how investigative journalism works in the kind of modern digital uh, journalistic environment that we're in. So I've called this investigative journalism in the digital age. One thing I would say is that I'm often invited to talk about digital journalism and things and I always start by saying it's not separate from journalism anymore. Digital journalism is journalism nowadays. There's no newsroom in the country that any of you either are working in or will be working in that doesn't have a digital element. We at HuffPost are a digital-only site, um, so obviously we're not also servicing a paper um, or a broadcast um, TV show or a radio show, but I've worked in broadcast previously, I worked at Newsnight for a long time, and there we thought a lot about how to make our journalism and our investigations in particular work for a digital audience. Um, So, these skills are something that you're going to need wherever you're working in journalism at the moment. First thing I wanted to say um, is that investigative journalism is thriving at the moment. There's a thought sometimes that um, as we moved into the digital world that there'd be a kind of shallowness to the sort of journalism that does well. And obviously, in the early days of um, digital, there was a big explosion of basically sort of click-baity sites. Um, And obviously, in order to make money, digital sites have to get readers in. So there is a sort of lingering sense that sometimes digital outlets um, forego quality and depth in order to get clicks. I don't think that's the case anymore. And I think most digital outlets, if not all digital outlets, have woken up to the fact that in order to get quality audience... Um, that's actually going to stick with you and keep coming back, you do need to offer depth. So here's some examples of digital outlets that I think are doing really great work um, in the investigative sphere. This BuzzFeed investigation um, was a huge, global, wide-ranging piece of work that they worked on for a really long time. I think it was shortlisted. They were runners-up for the Pulitzer, so you, know, you can't get a much better accolade for investigative journalism than that. They've got an incredible investigations team at BuzzFeed. They're a really good example of a digital outlet that's really investing um, in investigations. This is the Bureau Local from the Bureau of Investigations, um, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. This is actually something that we uh, partnered with them on. They have a really fantastic model where they have great investigative journalists. They do really in-depth stories. And with Bureau Local, they also work with local journalists. So they can really do that hyper-local granular stuff that speaks to communities. And then in order to ensure that they get a bigger platform, they then partner with national-level outlets so that their journalism gets seen by more people. This um, BBC uh, Africa Eye thread, I don't know if any of you saw it at the time. If you didn't, I would strongly urge you to check it out. It's a really great example of using a digital platform in order to tell an investigative story in a, diff- in a different way. They basically did this um, incredible investigation into the background um, behind a killing um, you know, in a war in Africa, and then they told the story through a Twitter thread which sounds crazy, but it was very in-depth. It had pictures, and they showed their workings out. So they they showed the reader. And obviously on Twitter, they were reaching people that weren't necessarily seeking out investigative journalism, but they showed their workings out behind the investigation. It was a really, really engaging piece of work. Um, And then this one uh, on the top left, top right for you guys, is the piece that we published yesterday morning. Um, And I should say, actually if either Emma or I seem slightly frazzled it's because we've been working till midnight every night this week on this story Um, it's uh, an investigation we worked on with a colleague of ours brilliant colleague called Nadine White um, who's actually been attending the CIJ uh, masterclasses on a Saturday so she's been training with these guys Um, and I would urge you guys to check it out, I'd love you to read it the second part went up this morning Uh, it's about a church that has been um, hailed and lauded by politicians and the media for sort of offering a solution to the knife crime crisis, and through our our investigations, uh, we've uncovered basically some really problematic stuff going on there, so um, have a read of that. I'm not going to talk for very long, because I want Emma to talk you through uh, an investigation in depth and how she did it, but I'm just going to touch on how um, digital impacts on news gathering for investigations, on readership for investigations, and then on Resources, which I've left at the end, is obviously the big one, but we'll tackle that last. So in terms of news gathering, um, digital has been fantastic for news gathering, um, for investigations. There's no doubt about it, where you used to have to go physically to look up records, to have access to sources, to find contact details, you can do so much of that online now. Um, and that's whether you're working for a digital outlet or a traditional newspaper or a TV show. Um, It's just far easier and less time-consuming to contact people. I put LinkedIn there. The exclamation mark is because people are always really dubious when you say LinkedIn is really fantastic for journalism. It's that annoying site that constantly spams you with emails telling you to congratulate people on their work anniversary. It's so good if you're doing investigations because it's a way of contacting people, not necessarily through their work email address. Um, It's a way of working out who worked... Say you're investigating a company, I've used it before, you can work out, um, you can do a really great search where you can look at people who worked for a certain company between different dates. Um, people who left at a certain time, if you're wondering if there was an exodus over something that happened at the company. Um, and LinkedIn themselves run a really good, um, very quick, like hour-long training program for journalists. And at the end of that, if you do it, they'll give you a premium account, which means you can contact people. So I'd, I'd really recommend it as a resource, it's Great. Yeah. I'm not sponsored by them, (laughs) but um, they they are really useful. Um, But finally, I want to make it really clear that all these great digital means of communicating with people are no replacement for face-to-face contact when you're doing investigations. There's two aspects to that. One is getting your sources to trust you. That's something any investigative journalist is incredibly familiar with as a challenge. But secondly, it's about trusting your own gut on a source, and you can't do that if you've spoken to them over email, over LinkedIn, over Facebook. As an editor, I will often ask my reporters, how do you feel about this source? Do you trust them? And you can't do that unless you've actually gone, sat down with them, had a cup of tea in their house, spoken to them, got a sense of where they are and their motivation behind talking to you. Um, So what I would say is, loads and loads of opportunity through digital for this stuff doesn't replace actually meeting your key sources. Readership for investigations um, through digital, I mean, it's the same as any readership or audience through digital. It's incredibly varied. So the idea that everybody's kind of, you know, 25 and scrolling through social media not interested in proper in-depth journalism is rubbish. There's every kind of reader out there for digital journalism, and you will find people with a huge appetite for investigations and more in-depth stuff, particularly if it's stuff that speaks to their community or speaks to something that's happening in their lives. It's a myth that long reads don't work on digital. The story that we published yesterday was 6,000 words of incredibly complex investigative stuff around this church. And we can see how long people stick on each article. And the dwell time on that was nearly six minutes, which might not sound like much, but in the digital world, that's a really, really long time for the average person to be reading something that long. So you can make them work. You just have to think even more about ways to draw people in and ways to make the content really engaging. So, you know, do you have screenshots of WhatsApp conversations? Do you do infographics? Are there ways to break up the text in a really engaging way? Um, Readers are less loyal. There's no doubt about that in the digital world. We're all bombarded with so much more information in so many more places that compete for our time. So you have to think about the fact that you might work for an outlet where readers aren't necessarily coming to you, unless you're basically The Guardian or the BBC. They might not be coming to you, scrolling through, looking for sources. So you have to think, what is it in this investigation that makes makes people feel like they want to click on it and they want to understand how it impacts on their life and why it's relevant to them? I think that's a really healthy challenge, actually. Um, and something that digital has made us kind of step up our game a bit in when we think about commissioning and, and the way that we write stories. Um, and finally, think about the fact that a lot of people are going to be reading your investigation on a phone or maybe just seeing it on Twitter. Think about the way that it looks, the way that they're engaging with your material. We all know that investigative work in particular can be incredibly complex to tell as a story and you have to work really, really hard to think about how that's going to work on different platforms. And finally, resources. Now, I didn't know how to illustrate this, so I've used the um, poster from the film Spotlight. I was trying to show that they... This is a film about the team that brought down... um, That exposed the Catholic church abuse scandal. Um, Incredible bit of investigative journalism work. And I was saying to Emma, I've used this to show that they had a team of four, which is actually quite big. And Emma was telling me that when she set up the investigations team at Archent, the newspaper group, her editor said, but were you a team of three or four? Uh, three so there were three of them, and he said, your homework is to go and watch this film and to realise that you only need four people to like, break open a story that size. But actually, I was using it to illustrate the fact that it's actually quite unusual for smaller outlets like ours to have as many as four people working on one story. It's inescapable that in the modern digital journalistic age, newsrooms are much smaller than they used to be. Um, I just finished reading She Said, which is the book about how um, the New York Times broke the Harvey Weinstein story. I really recommend it. It's a fantastic um, explanation of how they worked the story and how they worked with those sources. And in that, you get a sense that the New York Times just has these clusters of journalists working full-time on these these investigations, some of which never come to fruition, but it's worth having them on them. And that's fantastic. I would love to work in a newsroom like that. Unfortunately, most outlets aren't like that nowadays. Um, Emma's the only person that works full-time off diary in our newsroom. Um, and the story that we published yesterday and today has taken about six weeks, two months all in. That's had a real impact on our day-to-day working, having two people working full-time on a story like that. Um, so I don't want to end on a pessimistic note, but it's just something worth bearing in mind. Um, that there's, You have to have a really compelling reason to persuade your editors that you need to work... Um, on a story now because there's so much more competing time pressures um, from elsewhere. But I believe, clearly, I'm here, and you're all here because you believe in investigative journalism, um, that even within the fast paced digital world where we're all competing uh, for readers more than ever, we can get readers for investigative stuff. Um, and people really crave that depth and proper journalism.
3: Good morning, everyone. Um, My name's Emmy Yule. Um, I'm Special Correspondent at um, Hoff Post. As Jess said, um, I have the great privilege of working off diary and on mostly investigative-led stories, um, which is an amazing job and and not one that many people get to do, so I feel very privileged for that. Um, It's also my first time in Newcastle today, so I'm really delighted to spend it all here with you. Um, And I also wanted to say that I attend the CIJ Summer Conferences and have done training um, here (coughs) And I find it an incredibly useful resource um, and something that I use really regularly within my job, so I I would highly recommend these courses. The practical skills that they teach, I think, are a brilliant resource for for anyone that wants to do investigative journalism. Um, But what I thought I would speak to you about today... um, is a story that we called the Grenfell Property um, Investigation. It was a collaborative um, piece. Um, We worked with the Bureau Local Um, who were a group um, trying to push out investigative journalism stories and work collaboratively with with, um, papers across the country. Um, And also with an amazing local democracy reporter called Julia Gregory. Um, And it was very much a kind of three-person effort across the investigation. So... um, I just thought I would tell you a little bit more um, at first about the story. It's, it's, it's quite a complicated story to read and um, uh, sort of whittle down into a few sentences, but essentially um, it was a story that looked at um, the properties that Kensington and Chelsea Council had been buying and selling in the two years leading up to the Grenfell fire disaster. Um, and what we found was that the council had a pot of money totalling £129 million from selling property that could have been used um, to pay towards the Grenfell Tower renovation work. It was the first time that anyone had been able to directly show that money was in the bank that that the council could have spent on on that renovation work. Um, So so that was what was new and um, sort of compelling in terms of telling the story. Um, I think the importance of that obviously is that um, there was documented cost cutting um, during the Grenfell Tower renovation Um, very significantly, £300,000 was cut from the cladding budget, which led to the cheaper cladding being installed on the building, um, which we've, in recent weeks, heard was was one of the most significant reasons for for that fire spreading so quickly, and the 72 lost lives. So, um, while it was a story about money and buildings in some sense, I think the end point was very definitely that that national disaster that that continues to make headlines. Um, so, the, the question poses itself really if the money was there that could have prevented that cost cutting, why, why didn't that happen? Um, I think I'm always fascinated when I read other people's amazing investigative scoops about how on earth the story might have started and where it came from. Um, in this case, um, the story began with a conversation about a funeral parlour. <laughs> um, Gareth uh, Gareth Davies um, from Bureau Local and I had been working together um, on another investigation called Sold From Under You, which um, Gareth had done an incredible job of collecting data through FOI from councils across the country about buildings that they bought and sold. And uh, we partnered um, after the Bureau had collected that data to get it out to a national audience and also look at, look at um, sort of local angles in those stories. One of the things Gareth and I talked about was he'd spotted this sale um, in the Kensington and Chelsea data where they seemed to have bought a, a derelict building for 8.5 million pounds. It happened three months before Grenfell, which was sort of interesting. We, we wondered what it was. Um, But it it just looked very mysterious, and there was something about it being a funeral parlor site that was quite compelling to us, given everything that happened afterwards um, at that council. Um, So we discussed it a bit, and it didn't really fit with the brief um, of the previous investigation that that we'd done, but um, I think it kind of stayed with me. And after that investigation had finished, we went back and looked at it and decided we'd like to do some more work on that. Um, Yeah, I think the... I mean... What, what happened quite quickly was Gareth started doing some sort of digging on it and found that property guardians were living there. Um, the site seemed to be derelict. We were you know, using Google as much as we could on sort of Google Maps, trying to see what the building was. And it just looked like an incredibly odd sale, something curious about why a council would spend £8.5 million pounds to just keep a building empty for two years. Um, interestingly, as we'll see later on, the, um, the entire Grenfell renovation budget... Um, at its beginning, before it was raised, was only around the £8 million mark. So that gives you some sense of, of the, the, the sort of money that was being spent. So the, the way that we started the investigation was in a very traditional way. And um, I think probably in the way that I, I start most of my bigger investigations, shoe-leather reporting. Um, Gareth hadn't been able to go and look at the site because he's based in the north. Um, I was in London and able to go and do that. So the the first thing that we did on day one of this investigation was me go out and just take a look at these property sites. Um, I spent a very interesting morning in Hewer Street, which is where the funeral parlor was, and spoke to um, people in the street there. Absolutely nobody um, that I door knocked knew that the building had been bought or was owned by the council. Um, Everybody said it was an eyesore and that they just couldn't understand why this prime piece of property was standing empty empty and falling down. Um, So that that sort of added to our suspicions, really, that that this was something odd. Um, I also went and looked at some of the other sites. One of the other buildings the council had bought was the famous Lots Road Auction House in Chelsea. Um, It's featured on a TV programme, some of you may have seen. Um, They also had bought um, a community college site in North Kensington incredibly controversially for 28 million pounds. This site had, uh, the college itself had been in financial trouble um, at the time when the council swooped in and bought it. Um, It had left the college's future on that site um, in peril. Um, It still hasn't really been resolved to this day. Um, And we found later that the council's plans for that site had been to build housing on it. And I think it tells you something about, about priorities going on there. Um, So this sort of added to the feeling, really, that that there was something here that that we wanted to look more at. The the next thing I did, I think, once you have a sense... um, At this point, we had some data. um, We had the FOI data on the sales. We had the knowledge of what the sites were. We'd spoken to people in the community who themselves were sort of a bit perplexed about what was going on with some of these sales. But I really wanted to think about, um, you know, stories, good stories are not about buildings. They're they're about people. And um, why would this matter or be interesting to anyone who's not sort of nerdy investigative journalist who's just interested in the data? Um, So I went and approached Grenfell United, um, the main campaign group um, to do with the Grenfell disaster. they, they do give interviews, but they are sort of sometimes quite press shy, and um, I was conscious of that. But I, th- I thought it was worth a try. Um, what we did was actually send them a sort of teaser of the data that we had uncovered, and I said that we, you know, we found these sites. We'd really like to talk to you, tell you what we've found, and, and see if you know anything about it. And immediately they came back and said, "Yes, we you know, we're really interested. This is actually information that we've been keen to find out ourselves. Come in and have a chat." Um, I had a really interesting um, sort of long morning interview with Ed Defarn, who's been one of the key um, campaigners and survivors of the Grenfell um, fire in terms of um, going out and speaking publicly um, about some of the issues that still need to be addressed um, with that disaster. Um, And he talked um, really interestingly about what he knew. He, He had himself campaigned about the college site um, he'd been extremely engaged with following what the council was doing prior to Grenfell. He and a good friend of his uh, were the two people that had um, blogged about the um, concerns about fire safety prior to the fire. He, he, you know, here was a guy who's essentially almost working as a sort of citizen investigative journalist pre, pre-Grenfell fire, and he didn't know about most of these deals. Um, and he was really shocked about that. You know, he said, I, "I was there, kind of watching everything that the council was doing, and I, I had no idea." Um, that this had been going on. Um, I remember there, was, there were a couple of key lines that Ed um, uh, said during that interview that, that stuck with me really going forwards. And, and one was, they were interested in property development and getting their hands on the land. It feels like they weren't interested in keeping us safe. So a conversation that had started about buildings, I think, had already started to turn to what, what, you know, the decisions that councils were making and how that had impacted on residents living, living within buildings that it had a responsibility for. Um, Traditionally, with youth gathering, you might just have stopped there. We already had quite a lot, new data, some information about what um, the Council had um, spent this money on, and um, somebody that was critically affected by the information that we found who'd given amazing quotes. Um, But we didn't stop there, and I, I, I think this is what takes it from a story into an investigation, I think. We still didn't really know anything about why the council had bought these sites, what they were for, why this curious pattern of buildings that they were picking up. Um, so we didn't stop there, and we pushed on with the investigation. And the, the next thing that I did was really an incredibly deep dive into council papers. Um, not sort of sexy or fun work. <laughs> not what I think you know, most people think of when they um, think of an investigative journalist just sort of buried knee-deep in, in papers. Um, I became a bit notorious in the office for carrying around a huge file (laughs) that got bigger um, by the weeks as the investigation went on. But it was really important work. Um, I looked at cabinet minutes, forward plans, um, which sort of set out all the council's um, key and um, most critical projects. Um, to try and find records of these property deals and um, the timeline of what was going on and what, what was documented around um, what was happening with them. Um, a, a couple of kind of tips here. Um, not all of those forward plan documents were um, in easily findable search results in Google, um, but as I found a reference to one of the property deals, they quite often had a, a unique number that the council was using in their forward plans. To reference those projects, so I would go and Google those numbers instead, which quite often led me to other documents about those particular deals. Um, they're results that you wouldn't have found, I think, just by putting the name of the building into Google, so look out for unique pieces of information like that that might just get you to a document that is is there but is, isn't sort of easily listed um, in Google. Um, after A number of weeks of work, we we, we had a real eureka moment um, with the investigation, where um, one day I spotted um, in papers to do with the Grenfell Tower financing of the renovation works that one of our property sales appeared to be listed in that document um, as having raised cash that paid for the renovation works. Um, Inside Housing actually had already done a story shortly after the fire that had had made this connection. But obviously, we had all this other data saying that there had been all these other property sales as well. Um, And I think there sometimes comes a moment in investigation where you think, aha, (laughs) I'm really onto something here. And and that was definitely it with this one. so what we found was that um, a basement called Elm, in Elm Park Gardens uh, in Chelsea, six million pounds of that money had been used to pay for the Grenfell Tower renovation works. It was the core cash that the council had identified to, to do that. The budget was actually increased later on um, as, as the works went on, but um, a significant chunk of those works were paid for with this property cash. Um, the council following the fire, had said that it had been ring-fenced from spending money from property sales to um, fund council estate repairs. When I did interviews uh, with the council, they, this, this line sort of had been reset to us. We're ring-fenced. We can't spend money that comes from <coughs> selling property from what are called capital receipts on our council estates. Um, but common sense, I think, told us if you've used the money from one of these sales to pay for the renovation works, then... What's stopping you from using the rest of the money? Why couldn't they have done it? Um, I think that was still what I would call a sort of a big hole in the investigation at that time. Um, Gareth particularly is is a real expert on local government and finances, and none of us were aware of um, any reason why the council would, you know, any loophole essentially that would have stopped the council from using this other cash. Was there something different about these other sales that, that meant what they were saying was correct? So we needed to go and do some more work again, basically. What we did after that um, was Gareth started doing a forensic sweep of the council's accounts. Um, It's his real brilliant skill set and quite an unusual one. Uh, We also contacted experts, which is quite a usual thing to do if you sort of have a gap in your knowledge. we had a real um, sort of hair-raising week or so where we, we just weren't sure whether we'd be able to categorically find out whether, the, you know, whether what we were saying was absolutely correct. I thought it might be one of those investigations where you might have to go in along the line of sort of questions raised, or we'd been un- unable to confirm. But literally right at the eleventh hour, the government confirmed to us that councils are free to use money from the sale of property to fund improvements in housing stock. I think we knew we had it then. (laughs) Um, This essentially meant that Kensington and Chelsea could have spent more of the cash on the Grenfell Tower renovation work. What we did then was also put together a timeline of the spending on on the renovation works. We um, overlaid that timeline with the timeline of when the property sales had happened Gareth found that actually within the council's account uh, bank account um, at the time that the renovation works were going on, there was, there was £36 million in the bank account um, at the time that they were making the decisions about, about the Grenfell spending and cuts. Um, as I said at the start, um, it was significant information, I think, particularly when you see the impact that that £300,000 cut on the cost of cladding had. Um, there's obviously still a public inquiry going on into what happened at Grenfell and the second part of the inquiry that's due to open very shortly. We'll be looking at some of these issues around council decision-making and spending. Um, right at the heart of this story, and something that I was really conscious of the whole way through, is, is you know, the, the story of Grenfell, is the story of, 22, uh, sorry, of 72 lost lives and everything that we were doing really sort of related back to decision-making that in one way or another um, did have an impact on what happened on that awful night. Um, there was also another twist. Um, I'd done some work previously um, in another borough um, in a different job looking at a council that had been planning a very contentious development vehicle. Um, it's a, a sort of model that some councils are using these days to um, try and build new homes through privatising essentially some of their council estates and moving them into a private company. Um, something else we'd spotted as we were doing the investigation was that um, Kensington and Chelsea had set up a company called Kensington and Chelsea Estates Limited. Um, we didn't really know what this was for, but ha- having sort of done some work around development vehicles before, um, I did wonder whether this was what it could have been for. Um, we put it to the council, and it did. It did turn out they had set up this company to look at whether um, they might be able to use it towards uh, huge um, estate regeneration projects that they had coming up. Um, finally, we found that um, within that estate regeneration project, many of the site, many of the sites that they bought formed key pieces of land within those planned regeneration projects. I remember finding a map with a sort of red. Um, highlighted a uh, square around it and one of our sites sat, in fact the Hewer Street um, Funeral Parlour site sat right on the corner of a, of, a, of a council estate that they were planning to regenerate. That particular estate I think had two smaller towers and um, uh, a number of other housing blocks on the site. Um, one of the plans for that particular estate had included, there were three options um, knocking down all of the council housing, it was, it was incredibly controversial with the local community who've talked about uh, sort of gentrification and issues around that. Um, so we, you know, we were also able to report that um, these plans had been there. The, the council has since paused all of that work um, post Grenfell fire, um, although I did check last night and that company is still active on um, Company's House. <laughs> um, so to sum, I think what we'd found, essentially, was that what Ed Defarne had said had been right, property development was on the council's agenda. Um, and speaking to Ed um, afterwards, um, he, he told me that after we'd published the story, he, um, he described it as there'd been a time sort of post and after the HuffPost story where... Um, they, the campaigners have found it much easier to ask questions of the council and put them under scrutiny about these property dealings that they had previously suspected but really hadn't had any proof of. Um, and I, I, for me, that was, a, that was a really sort of heartening result to hear that the that data, that data and information that we put into the public domain had allowed the community to, to, to scrutinise the council um, in ways that they hadn't been able to do before. Um, in terms of telling the story, um, Jess has already spoken about this. I think we're very passionate at HuffPost about putting people at the heart of the story. This story in particular, with all of its many sensitivities, that that was such an important thing for us. And Julia Gregory, who worked with us um, all the way through the investigation, local democracy reporter in Kensington and Chelsea, um, was absolutely key to going back to the community and getting their response to the information that we'd found. Um, Julia did an amazing job. We had to keep a tight rein on what we had, and because of this very 11th-hour development with the government confirming... Um, our, our, you know, what, our premise that um, the money could have been spent in this way. She did an amazing couple of days' work just going out, talking to the community, finding out what they thought a public disgrace, outrage, um, all, all of the types of reactions that y- you would expect. And there was an amazing um, story that went alongside the, the, the sort of um, longer read piece just about the community's reaction. Um, I think that that was absolutely key to other other media picking up the story. The BBC actually went down and filmed um, in Kensington Chelsea on the day that we broke the story um, about it, but also focusing on the community reaction side. Um, So I think that really shows the importance of um, having those deep community connections. Um, I know a couple of the things that um, Julia did was also... um, Pre publication called some of the key Grenfell organisations to warn them that a story was coming out that they might find difficult or sensitive, um, so that they were pre prepared. Um, Julie was also just an amazing <coughs> pair of ears on the ground. She was at all the council meetings. If any of the properties that we were looking at were being mentioned, she was sort of there, ready to hear it. And we had many kind of late night WhatsApp conversations where she'd picked up key bits of information um, from being in council meetings, which is very old school reporting. Um, I thought I'd just sum up with um, some thoughts, really, about um, why this was a a digital investigation. Um, And I think, in many ways, it was quite an old-fashioned investigation. The shoe leather reporting, the use of council papers, um, Gareth's forensic dig into the counts, Julia's deep community connections um, and and reporting from council. All all of that is um, stuff that I think you you would really expect to see. Um, But I also think it was a very digital investigation in a number of ways, um, which will echo some of the stuff that Jess has already talked about. I think one of the great things um, about digital, particularly, um, is that you can write longer. We're justified, and it has to be, <laughs> has to be justified because it's, it's information that genuinely will keep the reader reading. Uh, this story was 3,500 words. Um, I worked in print before joining HuffPost for um, a group called Archant, who have local papers. Um, I would never have got anywhere near that word count. I think if I could get above 800 or 1,000, I, I was having a really good week. So. <laughs> um, It's a luxury to be able to write that long, and I really think you have to justify it by the content, but that is something that digital platforms offer that I I think you will not find in the majority of of print publications these days. Um, As Jess said earlier, we we get to look at these dwell times. For this particular story, I checked it last week, and it's still on four minutes, um, which is a really significant read. So that's really encouraging to see. Um, I think there's loads of opportunities with digital investigations to be visual and interactive as well. Um, From quite early in most of my investigations, I'll be thinking about are there graphics that I can use, searchable maps, searchable tables. You can link to your source documents, which I really encourage you to do. It's a really great sort of thing to put the information into the public domain for for others to use. Um, The video promo that you saw at the start of um, this presentation, uh, we actually put out um, about 12 hours before the story launched, um, it's a really great way to build anticipation and was an opportunity to sort of um, get people clicking on the site in the morning, um, which is important. And I think it's just, uh, particularly on social, it's just another thing that it's very shareable and, and helps to get that reach. Um, the community reaction interviews, as I say, were a key bit in engaging readers online. Um, just, uh, uh, I guess, uh, I'm always thoughtful about, and a word of advice on digital investigations is that you have to think really, really carefully about your headline and your intros. Um, they, they do need to be SEO-friendly. People, you know, if if people can't read the story if they, they can't find it in Google, so search engine is important. Um, you need something that's snappy. Um, in print, I had, did have the wonderful luxury of amazing double-page spreads, with headlines, wonderful pictures, pull quotes, box outs—all all of the kind of furniture of the page that I think immediately says to the reader, "This is a really important story. It's worth you getting a coffee, sitting down, and reading it for five minutes." With digital, you just don't have that luxury. They they see the headline and they click, or they don't. So I think you really have to think um, wisely about about how you use um, that five seconds when somebody sees the story for the first time. Um, just finally, I wanted, it was a collaborative investigation which I love doing and um, it's something that's happening more and more within the industry these days. Um, so a big shout out to um, both uh, Bureau Local and Gareth Davies um, and Julia Gregory from Local Democracy Reporting Services. As always when I speak about stories, thank you to our sources and, and to the community as well, we, we really couldn't have done it without them. Um, I actually messaged both Gareth and Julia last night just to ask about any kind of key things that they would say, Um, so I thought I'd just finish off with that. Um, So Julia said, in terms of working on the investigation, she really enjoyed the trust, the collaboration, uh, lots of reading of docs, which I can confirm there was many, (laughs) Um, good editors... Uh, Sometimes keeping your ears open, for example, when the properties were mentioned at committee meetings, um, and your discretion and humour in supporting each other as well. It can can get tough when you work on these difficult stories. Um, Gareth talked about um, the importance of FOIs. Um, The the job of work that he did originally in getting the data from all of these councils was just an incredible one. But as a bit of inside info, I think when he first sent out some of the test FOIs for that investigation, they were refused, um, and he had to go back and tweak them before putting out the sort of um, hundreds of um, FOIs that eventually led to this data. Interestingly, he said that Kensington and Chelsea had actually refused the FOI that gave us the data uh, that led to the investigation until he went back and challenged it. So he says challenge <laughs> if um, if the council says first time that you're not entitled to always think about whether there's something you can do about that um he mentioned also about it coming from a wider investigation actually he confirmed 700 fois from that that first um data sweep um and he says once you've got once you become a bit of an expert on a topic which you do when you're doing an investigation um, stick with it keep the data sets um, build up your body of evidence to support the story and provide context, which I think is probably a great place to finish. Um, so I hope you found that interesting. <laughs> um, and Jess and I would be really happy to take some questions.
1: Hi. Hi. Um, what, um, what I find interesting about Grenfell is the way that it kind of shone a light on local councils in the way that local journalism traditionally did, but local journalism is obviously um, not there in the way that it was in the past, um, and it, t- it took something like Grenfell to kind of change that focus. I was wondering if there are other investigations that you've worked on that have involved looking at local councils, and if so, how, what kind of information did you use and how did you get it?
3: Yeah, um, uh, yes, I I worked for local papers for 10 years. So, yes, councils, being at late council meetings was a bugbear of my life for a long time. But um, the biggest story I've probably worked on um, to do with councils at its heart was um, an investigation called The Hidden Homeless. Um, It was a long-running investigation that I did for the Hackney Gazette and then um, rolled out to a number of our other um, papers in London um, that looked at... um, basically the conditions that um, homeless people were being housed in when councils moved them into temporary accommodation. Um, That was a story that again started very much um, from traditional two-leather reporting. There'd been a death in a hostel. Um, We got a call into the newsroom uh, on a very hot summer's day that a body had been found by um, other people that were living in that hostel and were very upset about it. Um, So I went down and did a lot of sort of reaction interviews that day and heard and saw conditions that I just thought were horrific. Um, So we did some immediate reporting on that, um, but we went away afterwards, and um, I actually FOI'd the council to find out how much they were spending um, on this type of accommodation and just did lots of um, research to try and find out more about how many of these hostels, why people were being put there, who was responsible for overseeing conditions... Um, I then later expanded that out to other London councils to get the data for elsewhere to try and build a picture and um, the amounts of money that are being spent by councils on that type of temporary accommodation are absolutely shocking um, in Hackney which is just one of London's 32 councils I think um, it was £36 million pounds, and the figures have gone up since I reported two years ago um, it's this, it, the story is the same all over the country um, it, it, you know, the, the, the result of Housing benefit freezes and councils no longer being able to afford most of the properties on the rental private rental market mean that they're having to resort to these awful um, hostel-based accommodation. Um, so, I mean, again, that was heavily based within council information documents, but with people right at its heart, which was the, the, the poor, you know, the poor people that were being left living in these awful conditions.
2: Yeah, I would just say on the local terms um, and thing. I mean, it's undeniable that we've lost an enormous amount with the rollback of local press uh what we've lost is people who are like in every council meeting covering everything um and where we uh, HuffPost have posted definitely leaned slightly back towards that we have somebody based in preston somebody based in bristol um the stories that we have done tend to be rooted in communities. Clearly, if you're working on stories that have to have a national resonance, you can't necessarily send somebody to go down the rabbit hole of one local story if it's not gonna work for a national audience. It does feel, um, Emma, I don't know if you agree, like in the last year, or maybe it's post Grenfell, there has been a slight correction in that direction. Um, the Local Democracy Reporting Service that we that we worked with there, um, and the initiatives like Facebook are putting money into hyper-local reporting. I don't know how that will work out yet. Yeah, it's too early to see. but it feels feels like there's an, at least an acknowledgement of what we've lost. Um, I don't think we'll ever quite get it back, but there's definitely some moves back in that direction,
3: I think. Yeah. I think I would say as well, like, um, we, we like working collaboratively, and Jess and I were talking on the way here about, uh, you know, we haven't had a big sort of Newcastle-based investigation, say, for example, if any of you have ideas um, of stuff you'd like to collaborate on, then please get in touch. You know, I think that, that network needs to stretch more widely in terms of people on the ground, and, and it is it is local information and knowing your own community that that often leads to the best stories. And it's taking that piece of information and your sort of new sense on the ground to, there's something's not right here, or there's more of a story to tell here, and then thinking about how you go away and actually build that into a bigger story and investigate.
2: Um, I was just wondering, you you mentioned at one point that um, when the council were telling you that they um, had ring-fenced this money, um, and then you had to sort of go to other sources to to clarify whether that was true. why, why was it that you couldn't get the council to prove that to you and provide documentation? Is that not something that's covered by like, freedom of information requests?
3: No. Um, I, th- we were struggling to find written guidance that was absolutely clear about what the, the regulations were. Um, I still haven't seen anything that says it in black and white to the point where we were suitably convinced that we, we could just publish it. Um, the sense I got, and um, th- there was... There was sort of almost a a fencing match with the council where um, I did an interview with somebody at the sort of cabinet level who'd said it was ring-fenced, but when we looked at his quotes, he had sort of hedged it a bit. He was a bit unclear. I asked the council, and the first set of responses, they said um, we we sort of put what we we understood to be the case to them, and they said, um, what you've put to us appears to be correct. But there was... um, The wording that they'd used was slightly tricky, and it wasn't quite... It was a two-clause question, basically, that we put to them, and it wasn't clear which bit they were referring to. So just to be absolute, you know, we were going sort of above and beyond, but we went away, we got this other clarification from the government, and then I went back to them again. And at that point, they, they were no longer sort of saying about the ring fencing. So what they eventually said was our officers were working to the best understanding of the rules that they had at the time, and I think that that's, what, that that's the type of point that might well feed into the inquiry that's coming up because there was obviously uncertainty from the council itself about whether, you know, whether it could spend that money and what it was doing. So,
2: um, sorry, also just to add, I think often when you're doing investigations, they will bat you away the first time. Um, the last story I did at Newsnight was Westminster Bullying where we exposed John Birke. Um And the first response we had to that was literally like, this is ridiculous, you're completely wrong. Um, you know, a year and a half down the line, there's been a parliamentary inquiry. It's pretty much public fact um, the things that happened to those women, and we were told by them point blank it was absolute rubbish. So, kind of, it's quite normal to get that. You have to keep those.
3: and I think keep those responses from councils as well. Even if it's just the in, the, the informal briefing from the press officers, it's 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 sometimes important to be able to quote back to them what they told you at an earlier point.
1: Actually, um, does kind of answer my first question which is when you actually when did you first go to the council you know um, and, and that balance of that my second question is about the um, response since then uh, has, the, has the council changed its view i appreciate there's inquiries so they might say we can't comment until that whatever um and is the inquiry going to use any of your stuff
3: um just remind me of the first question sorry uh, you when, have... when did you first go <laughs> oh yeah, um, it, it's a, it was a really kind of interesting tactical point for us because um, a, a lot of the information that we needed would come from the council itself. Um, at the point where we knew what the sites were, I, I had started asking the council questions at that stage. Um, and so by the time it came to the point where we had pinned down exactly what we thought had happened, there had already been a fairly good working relationship between the press office and... Um, and the team and I think that was important actually to keep the communication lines open, if you can, um, we, we definitely had more information than we would have done if we if we hadn't started that process of just asking them first. Um, I, you know, there's a tendency as a journalist to think that the the people that you're looking into will always try and hide stuff. It's not always the case. Sometimes they they might just tell you. Um, in terms of what happened afterwards, by the time we met with the council, um, they had already been nearly a year and a half into their sort of post Grenfell. Um, change of position of no longer um, sort of isolating the community in terms of its housing strategy. Um, so they were really clear that, that, that times had changed. Essentially they said that lots of things had happened previously that they, they wouldn't have, have done you know, if, with the current administration as it is now. Um, one of the things that was happening as we were going to them um, was that there had actually been a restructure of their, what was I think called their corporate property department to uh, now being um, housing and social responsibility department. The final officer-level people that would have been um, involved in some of these decisions were, um, were leaving the jobs in the council, basically. Um, and I don't know whether um, this will come up at the inquiry. Actually, we were talking this morning about whether it might be a good point to perhaps um, suggest that we could pass on some of the evidence that we found, so.
1: Do you think there's more to be done on Grenfell? Because I've read stuff about Arconic and Celotex, the private companies that produce the cladding itself, had basically spent years or trying to influence government policy around what sort of cladding was allowed and had basically sort of rejoiced over the fact they'd infiltrated at that level. Yeah. Um, but they don't seem to have come under enough scrutiny, or at least from what
0: I've seen.
3: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, um, a colleague of ours, in and um, continues to report on the number of buildings that have cladding on them that it doesn't appear to be fire safe. Um, I don't think enough of those questions have been properly asked. Um, interestingly, I won't name the source, but one source I spoke to that had council connections said um, that had been involved... In this investigation, in a way, oh well, I won't say any more because I don't want to <laughs> reveal us all. Said that they were surprised that those questions about the, the fire safety regime a, a, around cladding hadn't been asked. Um, I mean, Jess has actually worked on yeah. other Grenfell stories that were much more to do with this, haven't we? So, you?
2: Newsnight, um, can you hear me? Um, Newsnight did loads and loads and like we, we went down a real kind of um, six-month rabbit hole on the cladding stuff. Um, we ran it really hard and we did do lots of stuff around um, how different combinations of cladding were de- were tested on desktop. They were actually um, the fire safety tests that that made um, the stuff get signed off to go on Grenfell. I think had never actually been tested in the lab, um, and we did a lot about kind of pinning it on those companies. I know, like, we had a um, reporter, Chris Cook, who kind of ran at that as hard as he could for for many months um, and got quite far, so I don't know whether anyone will pick that up again, to be honest. Um, but, yeah, there, we, we worked, we did a lot of stuff on the I think
3: one, one of the things Graham did um, shortly after this investigation was, um, and not linked to it, separate to the work that he'd been doing around cladding, was go out and interview people that were living in buildings that still had cladding on them that actually had been classified as dangerous, hadn't been taken off by the private landlords, and their properties were essentially unsellable because of that. So they were stuck, and he he did a great piece just asking what it's like to live in a building that's that's covered in a fire blanket, basically, so...
1: Is there an an accountant at HuffPost looking at the time you spend on a story, tracking the amount of clicks that got? And then working out, no, that's not going to be uh, something for the future we're going to do. Is, is a, the metrics being looked
2: at by somebody? No. <laughs> I, I hope that's not. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. I mean, we have accountants. We have, we have to keep the lights on. Um, no, absolutely not. No way. Um, my job, I run everything editorial, um, is to make sure that we're not doing things for indulgent reasons. Um, nobody wants to do journalism that isn't read. Um, but our job is to kind of... Well, Emma's job is to go and find the stories, and my, my job is to say, this one's worthwhile, let's, let's do it, and let's do it in this way that makes it um, really readable for people. But no, like it's really it's not that crude. I mean, I would be lying if I said there wasn't pressure on digital outlets um, to do stuff that has reach, but having said that, um, the stuff that we published yesterday was read by lots and lots, like tens of thousands of people, so... Um, no it's it 's not that great, basically.
3: i think it 's intuitive for yourself as well you, you know what a luxury it is if you 're given a couple of months to work on a story and ov- obviously if nobody reads it that that has not been anybody 's time well spent so um, I mean, I,
2: in my previous job, I worked at the BBC where um there is obviously many more resources if somebody wants to spend six months on an investigation Um, and we would still curtail things if somebody was spending too long on something i think most newsrooms do that anyway right because it's not it's it's in our instincts to want to get to the bottom of the story and to get something out and i think there's always that interesting tension between editors and correspondents although i have to say emma is the most amenable investigative reporter i've ever worked (laughs) with some of them are quite difficult um where they they want to keep going they want to keep going forever. Um, and it's the editor's job to say, actually, let's just get something up. Because often, you need to publish before, you're, before you've completely finished the story, um, because then more people will come forward. And sometimes it's the editor's job to say, hang on, stop. Let's go now. Let's actually get something up.
1: I, I'm aware of uh, Bureau Local and the link that they have with Huffington Post and a number of other uh, sort of uh, partner News platforms and the breakthroughs that they've made, and, and I know that it's clearly a, a, an incredibly sort of vibrant and effective way of reporting uh, on the local. I just wanted to ask: now, have we now officially declared local news dead? Many other sources. I'm interested to know, for instance, whether any your investigations has provided any kind of pring of conscience or reflection on the local newspaper and whether it's doing its job differently. Did you think effectively that this is the way that we're going to have to do things because we can just basically close the old tin lid on local newspaper reporting, which we should have been on top of this story, frankly, and should be on top of this and a number of other activities of the local state. Local authorities spend millions of pounds. So do uh, NHS trusts in the areas too. And as a former local councillor, I can tell you, I have never seen... A public chamber. I've never ever been cornered by a journalist to ask questions about the decisions I made, or indeed the questions I asked. And actually, tell you as well, even when I have leaked stuff, you know, handed stuff over on a plate, uh, have not even had the courtesy of somebody telling me, you know, that it's spiked in, you know, in in, in priority for the, the school fate. You know, so so is this really just what we're saying here? We've just sort of like genuflected over the grave of local news because it's
2: dead sorry can i answer that first then and then um i mean it's not for emma and i to decide whether or not local news is dead what what we're doing is working within the parameters of what we have i um, am horrified by the death of local news i wish there were vibrant local papers all over the country sadly people aren't buying them they're not paying for them Um, And that is a a real problem. People aren't willing to pay for local news. Um, There are, interestingly, what has sprung up in the last couple of years are some really fantastic hyper-local investigative websites. Again, people aren't paying for them, but they're doing really, really good work in communities. Um, I think Bureau Local, the stuff that we do with them, and all of the um, other organizations that have been set up to fill that hole are responding to the reality of what's happening. We're in no way pleased um, about what's happened to the local press, and I've hired in our newsroom, um, Emma came from Archant, our North of England correspondent, um, ran the investigative team uh, for the Lancashire Evening Post. Uh, We've hired someone in Bristol who worked at the Bristol Post. I've chosen to hire local journalists, not because I want to um, remove them from local newsrooms, but because they're brilliant. They're the best journalists out there. They're they're really, really well trained. Um, So... I agree with lots of what you said. Um, I don't want this to be a, a moment in time where we decide that local journalism is over. Um, that's a much bigger issue than something that I, that I can stop happening, I suppose, really. But I think, yes, it, it has... It, the, 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 the enormous um, and vibrant local newspaper scene has basically... is on its last legs. Yeah, I mean... I, I,
3: um, I would sort of echo that, and obviously my, my own career closely follows what, what's been happening in local news. I, I joined um, a local paper at a time when I think we had a team of five working on three editions of the paper. Um, by the time I left that company, the, 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 the paper no longer existed, sadly, um, the the time that I've worked in local newsrooms has has seen huge declines in staff, um, which is difficult, and and that is the reason why you're you're not seeing um, local reporters at council meetings. Having said that, um, my start in investigative journalism came um, at Arch in in, in a local news group um, at a time that an incredibly difficult resource for the industry. They they set up an investigations unit and that is becoming more common across the local newspaper groups. I think when you um, haven't the resources to cover everything on the ground you want to think more closely about what type of journalism you are doing. Um, And I think that is there and showing through. It's a tough time for the industry but I think they are trying to think about how how to address the best public interest journalism um, and support that And, and certainly Bureau Local is an amazing resource for anyone that's working in a local newsroom just to increase their reach of stuff that they can work on and be involved in
0: Thank you You've been listening to JLab a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with Newcastle University I'm Ian Wiley, thanks for listening